You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. So, I want to start off today uh, talking just a little bit about Kevin Green, who unfortunately passed away yesterday. Uh, as you guys know, I'm not a historian. I don't spend a lot of time talking about Packers history. Probably should, because it's interesting, but um, I don't. I also always feel bad every single time that I do this, because it's it always feels like... You know, why do you wait until after they're gone to recognize how great they are? But it is what it is. So as most of you probably know, Kevin Green actually did not play for the Green Bay Packers. He played for the Rams, he played for the Steelers, he played for Carolina, San Francisco, and then Carolina again. The guy had a 15-year career and was an absolute sack machine. Of his 15-year career... Ten of those years, he had double-digit sacks. And the crazy thing is, he had double-digit sacks the last four years of his career, which just so happened to be at age uh, 34, 35, 36, and 37. Actually, from age 30 to 37, he had double-digit sacks every year with the exception of 1995. He had nine sacks and went to the Pro Bowl. That year, he was sandwiched in between two All-Pro seasons. First team All-Pro in 94 and 96. As absolutely ridiculous as it sounds, there's really only one person that comes to mind when I when I say those things out loud, and that's Julius Peppers. Julius Peppers played until he was 38. He had a 17-year career, so two more years. Also in 17 years, had 10 years of double-digit sacks, so technically Kevin Green had more per year. And although, um, I mean, he wasn't even at, in, in Julius Pepper's final stretch, he had 7, 7, 10.5, 7.5, 11, and 5. So clearly Peppers was dwindling in a way that Kevin Green was not. Now, I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to one of the greatest freaks of all time, Julius Peppers, but it's hard to argue if somebody wanted to say, I think Kevin Green maybe was a, a, a little better, at least statistically, as a pass rusher. But anyways, without turning this into a, you know, him versus him, um, the fact that Kevin Green even belongs in the conversation with one of the greatest players in human history is incredible. Obviously, guys like this are just built different. I mean, human beings at a certain level, I mean, Clay Matthews is a great example of a great pass rusher who has a period in which he has a prime, and then he gets past his prime and he just doesn't quite get it done anymore. Clay Matthews was solid in the first, you know, one, two, three, four, five, let's call it six years of his career. Four of his six years, he had double-digit sacks. Five of his six years, he's a pro bowler. A second year of his career, a first-team all-pro. He hit 29 years old, and that was it. He has not seen double-digit sacks since he was 28. He's had six and a half, five, seven and a half, three and a half, and eight. I'm not hating on him, I'm just saying, you know, guys typically have a prime, and they get past their prime, and they they just aren't quite what they were. That's normal. There are only a few rare freaks that just age is not an issue. And again, you think about Frank Gore, you think about Julius Peppers, 
I'm not going to add kickers and quarterbacks because that's a little bit different. I'm talking about positions where you have to be genetically different, and Kevin Green was genetically different. Something else worth noting that that, that uh, he pointed out often in his career is that he actually deserves maybe a tad bit more credit because he's an outside linebacker. Some of these other great pass rushers in these 4-3 defensive ends, which is kind of embarrassing that I don't even consider this, although that's why I use pass rush percentage. But when we're just looking at sack numbers, remember, outside linebackers drop into coverage. Not always, but especially back in the day, traditionally in a 3-4, you have coverage responsibility. So if you're getting 15 sacks and you're getting several less swings because sometimes you're dropping into coverage, it, it, it affords you even more respect because you get less attempts than a traditional down defensive end in a, in a 4-3 who just rushes the passer. But um, not surprisingly, when you have that long of a career and sustain that much success, he's number three in all-time sacks in NFL history behind only Bruce Smith and Reggie White. Talk about some genetic freaks. As far as linebackers go, if we're looking at technically linebackers, he's number one in NFL history as Reggie White and Bruce Smith were defensive ends. Just so we're clear, I, I think one of my favorite, most dominant pass rushers of all time, Lawrence Taylor, outside linebacker with less sacks. So anyways, obviously after that, um, he actually went on to have a bit of a wrestling career, which is pretty cool. Obviously wasn't the one of the big shots, but he did actually work with guys like Ric Flair and whatnot, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, I mean some of the biggest names in wrestling. But in 2009, he joined the Green Bay Packers as the outside linebacker coach, working with guys like Clay Matthews, and obviously um, the most famous, one of the, I mean it, it's got to be a top 10 quote, it's, it's the it is timeline. Right, the famous line that Kevin Green told to Clay Matthews before he made a fantastic play to seal the Super Bowl victory for the Green Bay Packers. And the one thought I had is, and it, it sounds like I'm being hyperbolic for the sake of being overly generous to him because, you know, he passed away. But really, if you think about it, do the Green Bay Packers win the Super Bowl without Kevin Green? Maybe. But that's one of the crazy things about the NFL. It's such a team sport. Everybody is needed. Every little thing contributes. There's such a crazy butterfly effect. I mean, how many, how much of Clay Matthews' success, not just on that play, but in that game and over the course of the season, had to do with things that Kevin Green taught him, one of the greatest pass rushers of all time. Coach Hahn went on um, Twitter yesterday and basically explained that play. So few people actually understand what's happening on that play. I certainly didn't. But it wasn't just a fluke play. He's screaming, spill it, spill it. He knew what the play was. And he was right. He's not just screaming random stuff. He's not just giving him a pep talk. He's telling him what the play is and exactly what to do. He was right and as a result made a great play. Clay was smart. He had good coaches. So, anyways, again, it's a shame to uh, to only be able to recognize people like that after they're gone. Some of you obviously already knew some of this information, had the privilege of, of watching him. I obviously was around during his time, but wasn't super familiar with the name, I guess. Which is strange, because, I mean, again, you, you list off some names of some of the other guys, like Lawrence Taylor. Of course I know who Lawrence Taylor was. You know, I was a giant Junior Seau fan. I just... It's kind of strange, I guess. I don't know why he wasn't a little bit more known and respected, I guess. But uh, I do want to piggyback off of that because, again, that thought really made me think about something else. The fact that 
I genuinely don't know if we win the Super Bowl without Kevin Green. And that goes for all the coaches, the assistant coaches, the players. Obviously, at, at some level and some degree, uh, the Packers still win a Super Bowl without X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, it's such a team sport, and it really comes down to every single component. And um, I kind of want to marry that with some of the anxiety that comes with being a fan. And again, I, you know, I don't want to sit here and dwell on, on negative fans, but it, it's worth noting. And again, part of the reason I do this isn't just to trash negative fans. It's because on some level, we all have this level of anxiety. Whether we go on Twitter and scream it, or whether it's just a very quiet voice in the back of our brains, on some level, we kind of hear that voice. There is anxiety watching the second half of that Carolina Panthers game saying, I don't think this team can win. Now, the, the more rational part of our brain realizes that that doesn't mean we're disqualified. It doesn't mean we can't win. But here's the thing. I think something we're all missing is that the Super Bowl is meant to be miraculous. It really is. I think you're right. I think that small voice in the back of your mind saying you can't, the Packers can't win is right. It's correct. The last time the Packers won the Super Bowl, they were a team that can't win a Super Bowl. The next year, the Giants won. The Giants were not that good. They were a wild card team. They were not supposed to win the Super Bowl. And I'm not saying it's always the the underdog that wins a Super Bowl. Even when the favorite wins a Super Bowl, which doesn't happen all that often, it's still miraculous. Because even those teams have to see the fatal flaws and look at it and say, if you do that in the playoffs, you're not going to make it. You're not supposed to be the one of 32. But yet somebody has to be. You know, It's, it's kind of like the lottery. Don't ever play the lottery because you're never going to win. The odds are infinitely stacked against you. That's true. It's also true that somebody's going to win, and every time that everybody has ever told that winner, don't play, you're an idiot, has proved everybody wrong because he defied the odds and he won. Obviously, winning the Super Bowl is infinitely more likely than winning the the lottery, and I'm certainly not encouraging anyone to play the lottery, unless you're planning on giving me a little bit of that, in which case, please buy as many lottery tickets as possible. I'm kidding. It's it's not a good idea. It really isn't. Just saying if if, if you happen to, you know. Guy at my work actually did win a million dollars. I am I am trying to discourage people from playing the lottery, and I've done nothing but the opposite. I think it was a scratch off though. Interestingly enough, he was just fired from our work and then goes on to win a million dollars. Just living the dream. But that's that's really what makes the Super Bowl so special. That's what makes it so magical when your team wins a Super Bowl. It's not supposed to be expected. There is no point at which you reach perfection and then you just coast through the Super Bowl and win as you're expected to. I mean, granted, the, when the Packers won in the 90s, that was a freakishly dominant team. In terms of a team that's basically perfect, that's expected to win and goes on to win, that's about it. There have been a handful of those teams. That's basically the number one offense and the number one defense in the NFL that wins a Super Bowl. It does happen maybe once every 20 years. But generally speaking, there and, and, and listen, it was still magical because everybody knows you don't have to win. Stuff happens. That team wasn't undefeated. They had losses. Despite clearly being the best team in football, they lose games. And so part of it is all the negative, it kind of doesn't matter. The only thing that, the, the only real, getting philosophical here, the only things that matter are, first of all, getting that number one seed, because that clearly has massive implications, and, and you have to play one less game. And then after that, it's how well do you play in those games? That's it. 
How well do you play in those playoff slash Super Bowl games? It's the only thing that matters. Not how well did you play last week or, or you know, six weeks ago against Tampa or whatever that was. That doesn't matter. And, and in reality, on some level, it adds to every negative moment, every bad pass, every drop, every loss, every period of anxiety and strife and anger and sadness and fear and trepidation adds to the excitement and joy of a Super Bowl victory. It adds to the bliss of it all. Because you, you know what the team went through. You know the struggle and the hardship and the heartache. The pain. The feeling of despair. It's never going to happen. This isn't the year. Aaron Rodgers is almost gone. Oh. And again, enough has happened this season to already be able to look back in a couple years and say this was a special season. Already. Aaron Rodgers in the twilight of his career having a bounce back season. Devontae Adams and, and just all. I mean, I'm, every it, it, you know, it seems like every day I go through who's the number one and there's several on this team. But just, I mean, the injuries and just all the obstacles to overcome, it adds to what makes football special. It's not just the best team wins it all, and they win it all forever, and just dynasties and all this stuff. The Patriots are a fluke, and even so, what did they win, six times in 20 years? It was a 20-year dynasty, and they lost almost every year. That's what's considered a dynasty. Nobody has won the Super Bowl yet. The Chiefs have not been handed a Super Bowl trophy. The Pittsburgh Steelers are basically, they're just done. They're completely and totally done. They're burned out. They're, they're just, they're completely washed up. This team was 11-0. and 0, And then they come down the final stretch, and they've got five games left. Three of them are going to be difficult. Two of them are layups. They just lost two of those layups and got basically annihilated by one of the only difficult games on their schedule. Now they have the Colts and the Browns. At this rate, they're going to go 0-5. They're going to get into the playoffs and just get annihilated. This was the only undefeated team after Week 12, after just beating the Baltimore Ravens. Nothing is etched in stone. Things can turn on a dime. And the other great news is that I was wrong when I said that this season would just have a massive asterisk next to it because of COVID. So far, that has not been the case. The fact that we've made it this long and there haven't been massive outbreaks that have shut down in time, I mean, there, there has been, but it didn't really change things. The Titans have been getting kind of raked over the coals for, you know, things that have gone on with their organization or whatever, but still, I mean, they're still in the running. You know, the Steelers obviously, I mean, I guess if they want to complain, but it would, they've been so far removed from any COVID-type things, I don't think they can blame that for what's happening here, losing 17-27 to to the Bengals. We haven't seen, you know, guys like uh, Pat Mahomes go out due to COVID or anything like that. And I think if that happens in the playoffs, I think it's just going to get pushed. They're not going to allow the Chiefs to get annihilated in the playoffs because Mahomes is out. So despite what felt like an impossible hurdle, that, you know, entire teams are going to be down and you're going to be losing, you know, plus, I mean, this was back when people were opting out. And I just thought, there's no way, there's no chance we get through this season without some people, rightly or not, being able to say, we only lost because of COVID. So far, I don't think there's any fan base that can say that. And if we made it this far, I don't think it's going to happen in the playoffs either. And again, they will happily just push it back if they have to. So, asterisk removed. Not a thing anymore. This is a real thing. It's not the COVID Bowl, it's the Super Bowl. It's a real season with real players. Maybe the Vikings want to complain a little bit about... Uh, you know, not having their defensive tackle, but I mean, you know, okay, if you're going to complain about that, we didn't have funches. Get out of my face. 
mean, there, there were some, some opt-outs, but let's face it. Look at the teams at the top. Look at the teams that are not at the top. Look at the teams that fell. How many of those can you genuinely say are due to COVID opt-outs? I think it's basically right about where you would expect it to be. So, I mean, get excited. Because at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's nothing more than a pipe dream, and that's all it's ever supposed to be. The fact that we've only had two Super Bowls with, with two MVB quarterbacks. Exactly. Exactly right. That's what football is. The Super Bowl is fleeting. And that's what it's supposed to be. It adds to it when you win. You're not supposed to know who's, who's going to win. Right now, the Packers are in the running, and that's it. That's all we know. Maybe they're one and done. Maybe they're Super Bowl champions. Anyone proclaiming either of these things definitively today is just saying it. And if they get knocked out, it, it's, it's not because of some... Again, this is our constant need to be able to define things because we're so uncomfortable with just things just being there. It just is. Well, this is Gutekun's fault. This is Matt LaFleur's fault. This is Aaron Rodgers' fault. Can't win in big game. No, man, just football. That's it. It's just football. You lose in football. It happens. If the Packers get knocked out, that doesn't mean they're garbage. It doesn't mean they're frauds. It's football, man. Same thing if they win. We don't have to put some kind of a label on it. This is why they're the best. This is why MVP. This is da 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 No, dude. Just, just enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that crazy stuff happens. Things that are not supposed to happen, happen. Embrace that. Packers aren't the best team. Good. It's going to make it all the more sweet when they win the Super Bowl. Anyways, got to take a break. We'll be back, and I want to do a little bit of uh, Brian Gutekunst appreciation since we're on the, uh, I don't know, just kind of feels like the vibe today. So that's what we're going to do. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. So I got to give a shout out to uh, Mr. Negative. I never know if he's actually being serious or if he's just trying to get me riled up, but one thing he does is he forces me to look things up because he says very outlandish, very negative things that are that are basically just layups for me to prove him wrong because he's go so over the top. But again, it's it's good because I have to actually go look it up, and that sparks all kinds of things. And it, it one one of the things is he really was trashing Brian Gutekunst, which forced me to go look at what Brian Gutekunst has done, and it really just brought out a massive amount of appreciation. Now, one of the and again, this is this is the thing where um, fans of teams generally hyperanalyze their own team. Sometimes, as I've learned with my NFL Draft channel, that produces fans that think that their team is perfect, which is baffling to me that there are fans that look at their own garbage teams that are picking in the top five, and you can't give them anything. I, I gave a running back to the Washington Redskins, and they're listing off guys that I've never heard of, saying, Are you kidding me? We got these guys. You can't draft anybody for these teams. You just can't. Anybody you draft is like, we already have a freak at that position. Okay. Cor- they've got like one 40th overall cornerback and a bunch of scrubs. And they're like, we got a lockdown corner. Okay, well, he's not very good, first of all. But, you know, how about a second really good corner? Is that okay? Or no, we don't need to. Just, okay. Just impossible people. But the other end of that is people who look at, for example, um, draft picks. And if you are looking at your GM and you're refusing to look at any other team, everybody's always going to assume that our GM sucks at drafting. Always. You know why? As I've said a thousand times and I've actually done the homework on this, almost every single draft pick, almost every single one is terrible. Almost every single draft pick is really bad at football. Very few of them are good at football. So, If we look at 2018, 
which is what I would consider to be somewhat of a bad draft based on the hit-to-miss to ratio. And I, I don't exactly know. I, I, I know generally certain things, but I've never actually looked at what is a good percentage. And that's something I really need to dig into and I really want to work on. Uh, just to get an idea. I mean, I, I say things like about 50% of first-round picks will be good football players, and by good, I mean adequate starters. I don't mean pro bowlers at all. Definitely not. Maybe one or two. But even if you look at 2018, remember, Brian Gutekunst was the GM for about a week when the draft came up. Now, he was in the room already, but he didn't have his guys on staff. He was ba- He just stepped into a role and had to coordinate a draft. In this situation where he was the GM for about a week, and I'm exaggerating a bit, but he was hired, I believe, in January, and learning how to be a GM and and how to, you know, send out your scouts and what process we're going to have and, and how we're going to organize this, that, and the other. In that draft, he only came away with the best corner in football right now, Jair Alexander. A fifth-round pick in Marquez Valdez-Scantling, which some people might look at that and say that wasn't a very good pick. Interestingly enough, um, believe it or not, Marquez Valdez-Scantling was not the only wide receiver taken in that range. There was a wide receiver taken one pick after him by the name of Damian Ratley. Have you ever heard of Damian Ratley? How about Dion Kane or Dylan Cantrell? How about the wide receivers taken before him, Jordan Lastly or um, Darice Fountain? How about Justin Watson? He was the first uh, wide receiver taken in the fifth round. How about Russell Gage or Tremont Smith? or Cedric Wilson, or Equinemius St. Brown. These are the wide receivers. I just listed every wide receiver taken in the fifth and sixth round. So, when we again, if you look at things in their actual correct context, right, you look at it and say, MVS is not that good of a pick. When you consider how many wide receivers in the entire draft class are any good, and the fact that our GM was able to pluck one of the few out is incredible, and I'm really starting to realize that that is a gift that he has. Alan Lazard and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, as well as Equinemia St. Brown, for whatever that's worth, were all 2018 picks. Not a lot of great wide receivers in that group outside of, you know, first and second round guys. Calvin Ridley, DJ Moore, Cortland Sutton was a second round pick. Um, let's see, DJ Chark was a second round pick. And then that draft class he also ended up getting us jk scott the punter some people still mad about that but we have a punter now one of the best in the nfl now he missed on seemingly josh jackson oren burks was a terrible pick jamon moore was a terrible pick cole madison wasn't a great pick um equinemius does not seem like it was a great pick we haven't seen a lot of him but that's i guess part of the equation and then the seventh round which i mean i don't ever expect anything from seventh round picks james looney hunter bradley and kendall donerson nothing came of those guys now his first draft in which he had a full season to prepare, Rashawn Gary. Of all the, uh, let's see, 2019 edge rushers, Rashawn Gary is currently fifth in total pressures this season. Brian Burns is number one, not surprisingly. Um, Chase Winovich, Montez Sweat, Max Crosby, Jerry Tillery, and then Rashawn Gary. Cleland Furl is at 30. Josh Allen has 22 uh, pressures right now. Nick Bosa obviously injured. But out of 30, Rashawn Gary is fifth right now in pressures. He is actually tied for second in sacks with Montez Sweat uh, at seven. Brian Burns has nine, right? Okay. His next pick was Darnell Savage. In that draft class, of all the safeties, Darnell Savage currently is ranked number four. Well ahead of guys like Juan Thornhill, Taylor Rapp, Amani Hooker, Deontay Thompson, Nasir Adderley, 
Jonathan Abram is the lowest graded safety in the class. He was another first round pick. And again, if we look at um, the grades in the second half of the season, no question Darnell Savage is number one. If we just look from, let's, I just randomly picked week 10 on, his grade is an 86.5. The next highest is Donovan Wilson, 79.2, and then Kahari Willis, 73, Lonnie Johnson, 71. Those are only four guys that grade out somewhat well. He is tied with Imani Hooker for three interceptions. He is leading all of them with five pass breakups. And of the guys that are actually starting on a, on a decent clip, he has the lowest passer rating. I'm talking about the entire season of any safety taken in the entire draft class, 51.4. Taylor Rapp, a guy that I really liked, 61. Amani Hooker, 65. Marcus Epps, 77. Deontay Thompson, who was a big name at one point, 109. Nasir Adderley was a real big name for a long time, 111.5. Juan Thornhill, another big name Kansas City took, 118.6 passer rating. Jonathan Abram, the, the Raider, 120.4. He, he got, I would argue, the best safety in the entire class. Then in the second round, he gets Elton Jenkins. Um, it's hard to argue that he isn't the best in this. It's hard to kind of gauge it without, you know, I mean, I could do the math, but it would take entirely too long, and I'm running out of time rapidly. But Elton Jenkins, for example, um, has allowed 12 pressures, which is the fourth least of anybody. But let's do some quick basic math here. Elton Jenkins has allowed 12 pressures on 925 attempts. Connor McGovern has allowed 10 in 454 attempts. Alex Bars, 7 pressures in 421 attempts. Ben Powers, 5 in 371. I'm willing to bet, and I would have to double-check Ben Powers, but I think Elton Jenkins, on a pressure-per-snap basis, is by far leading the group. By the way, he's tied with Max Sharping, who has given up 12 pressures in only 354 attempts. The guy's kind of terrible. Elton Jenkins is doing a fantastic job. Is he the best guard in the entire draft class? I think possibly. Chris Lindstrom is another one to consider, but he's given up 22 pressures. That's not great. David Edwards is also graded quite highly, 15 pressures in 858 attempts. So just on a you know pressure per snap basis, Elton Jenkins is beating him. But he is grading out fairly well. So in the second round, he may have just gotten this, the best guard in the entire draft class. 24 guards have played at least a little bit this season. And that doesn't include the guys that are no longer even in the NFL anymore, much less are not playing, are on you know the bench, are practice squad guys, are free agents. He's playing, and he's playing at a level in which he's maybe the best in the NFL. 32 teams, all selecting guards, dozens of guards. The Packers GM gets the best one. So he, he, he gets Rashawn Gary, who is top three-ish, and the only other guys that are better are all first-round picks. Then he gets the best safety in the class, a year after getting the best corner in not just the class but the NFL. And then the very next pick gets the best guard in the class. He goes on then to pick uh, Jay Sternberger, the jury's still out on him. So far, hasn't been great. The injuries alone are troubling. But again, I want to remind you, he is following identically the path of Robert Tunyon. The stats are almost identical, except for the fact that Jay Sternberger is slightly ahead. Even with the injuries, he's already ahead of what uh, Tunyon did in year two. Year three was Tunyon's big breakout year. So don't give up on him quite yet. But um, if anything, I, I still like DeGuara better. And obviously, Tunyon is already there so we're not exactly waiting for a tight end to break out but then you get Kingsley Kiki in the fifth round which we kind of forget about sometimes Kingsley Kiki is a fifth round pick his current grade is fifth overall in the class fifth 
He's a fifth-round guy. How many defensive tackles got picked before Kingsley Kiki? And he's outplaying almost all of them. He's ahead of Draymond Jones. He's ahead of L.J. Collier, who apparently they kicked inside. That uh, you know, was a horrible... Everybody knew that was bad. Ed Oliver is one of the worst in the entire class, which kudos to me for saying I didn't quite get the Ed Oliver thing. I'll be honest, man. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and brag for a minute. For a guy that says and, and believes that I don't know jack about the draft, and it's true... I've got a decent track record. I was banging the table that Christian McCaffrey was the best running back in that class. I was banging the table that Derrick Henry was the best running back in that class, better than Ezekiel Elliott. I looked like a complete idiot for about three years, and now look where we're at. Brian Burns was my guy since November. He is currently the best pass rusher in that class. Just saying. Sometimes, sometimes. I say stupid stuff too, but you know, again, I've got a pretty good track record as compared to other guys that don't know what they're talking about but claim to know what they're talking about but again Kingsley Kiki what the defensive tackle that was taken before him this is a fourth round pick now was Greg Gaines Greg Gaines currently has four pressures on the season Kingsley Kiki has 22 he has four sacks Kingsley Kiki has as many sacks as Greg Gaines has pressures the pick before that was actually a third round pick Kalen Saunders to the Kansas City Chiefs right the brilliant Kansas City Chiefs he has zero pressures, zero sacks, zero hits, zero hurries. He's only played 23 snaps this entire season. Wait a minute, the Chiefs are freaks. They're so good, and we're so stupid. We don't know how to draft. Burp, 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 burp. First of all, I've been telling you, the Kansas City Chiefs have been drafting like putrid garbage ever since they got rid of the guy that built that team who had incredible drafts. But, you know, he can't find a job, and now these morons can't draft anybody. But Kalen Saunders, not even playing. Third-round pick. Again, I mean, it's, you get a, a hand. Jeffrey Simmons is number one right now in terms of grade. He's a first-round pick. Quinnen Williams is number two. He is a top-five pick in the draft. Then you get Dexter Lawrence, another first-round pick. Then you get Shy Tuttle, who is a undrafted free agent, which you know, massive hit for the Saints. Kudos to them. And then Kingsley Kiki, a fifth-round pick. After that is Draymond Jones, who's grading out his average and was, I believe, a first-round pick, if not a second round. I think he was late first. Let me see. No, no, he's third. Oh, I guess he fell quite a bit. Whatever. Third round pick. Christian Wilkins is at nine. He was a first round pick. He was a number 13 overall selection for crying out loud. He went one pick after Rashawn Gary. He's got a 65 overall grade. We've got a guy that was better. We picked him in the fifth round. And this is after getting Rashawn Gary, Darnell Savage, Elton Jenkins. And we got Kadar Holman, who's come in and been impressive when he plays. We got Dexter Williams, who, I mean, he can't get on the field. He's probably not going to be around very much longer, but, you know, I, I, I liked him. And then Ty Summers, who I think is overrated, but he's, he's the only guy right now that's got a positive grade on special teams. And he's come in and done a couple things. That is a knock-it-out-of-the-park draft. Then we come to 2020. We got Jordan Love sitting on the bench. We don't know what we got. We got A.J. Dillon, who the only time we've seen him, he's been spectacular. But we don't see him very much because we happen to have very good running backs. We got Josiah DeGuara, who played a couple of snaps before he got hurt and was looking incredible. Then the old, the first guy that we get to is a fifth-round pick, Kamal Martin, who is the best linebacker in that entire draft class. And we got people saying Jordan Love is a bad pick. Listen, maybe he won't pan out. But based on this guy's track record, you're betting against Brian Gutekunst right now? This guy is white hot. After that is a sixth round. I couldn't care any less about sixth round picks. They're basically useless 99% of the time. John Runyon is a sixth round pick that people right now are clamoring for. Get Lucas Patrick off the field. Get John Runyon in. 
We also got Vernon Scott. He very rarely plays. He, he's very good. These guys, None of these guys are even playing, but when you get glimmers of them, they're all very good. Right? Even Kamal Martin doesn't play very much, but when he does, he's very good. Vernon Scott, when he plays, very good. John Runyon, maybe a little overrated, I don't know, but he might be our best guard that's available right now. And again, Josiah. We saw a flash, and he was real good. A.J. Dillon, we've seen a flash. He's real good. This is one of the most incredible series of drafts ever. And you want to go out and find other people that are drafting anywhere near this good? Best of luck. Again, Kansas City Chiefs. After getting rid of the guy that drafted Pat Mahomes, the year after he drafted Pat Mahomes, we get Breland Speaks, Derek Nadi, Dorian O'Daniel, Amarni, Amarni Watt, Miko Hardman, Juan Thornhill, Kalen Saunders, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who's fine, massively overrated, but he's good. He's fine. He's what you would expect from a first-round pick and an already elite offense. Uh, Willie Gay, linebacker in the second round, not doing jack squat. Lucas Nier. None of these guys are doing anything with the exception of one first-round running back, which is a layup. I did a quick Google search, and I was like, who's the best GM in football? And the number one on this list, pardon me, number one on this list was the San Francisco 49ers GM. Why? Outside of these early first-round draft picks, what are they doing? They drafted Javon Kinlaw and, and Brandon Ayuk. Ayuk's not bad, but look at all the wide receivers and how well they're doing. Ayuk is, is pretty low on the list. Javon Kinlaw's not doing jack squat. He's got a 54 overall grade. He was looking real good in the beginning of the season, not so much anymore. I mean, I, 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 again, go find him. Go, go look at the Patriots last several drafts. You go find me the best draft pick they've made in the last three years. I don't think more research is needed on this and believe me I really want to do it and I'll be picking at it when I get a minute here and there. I would be pretty stunned if you can convince me there's a team that's drafting better than the Packers right now. Um, Titans are doing a pretty good job. I guess I mean 2018 was a complete waste of a year. Rashawn Evans is terrible. Harold Landry is terrible. Dane Cruikshank and Luke Falk. 2018, they had four picks, and none of them are doing anything. But Jeffrey Simmons is a good pick, kind of a layup, because he was he probably would have been like a top-five pick if he wasn't injured. Uh, A.J. Brown in the second round, great pick. Amani Hooker's decent in the fourth round. It's fine. I don't think this is quite up to snuff. And again, we, we, we still don't quite know, right? I'm still wondering, is Kamal really going to be that guy? Is, is Kingsley Kiki really going to be able to maintain this level of play? Is Darnell Savage going to be able to maintain this level of play? It's, it's too early to know long-term what we've got. But, I mean, I, I don't understand not being optimistic. I don't understand not realizing this is unbelievable. And again, we've got two guys. Everybody's complaining. All these people popping off on Twitter about, oh, you drafted a bunch of losers in the first two rounds. They're not even playing. <laughs> You're going to doubt what I would consider to be the number one drafting GM in football right now about a guy that's sitting on the bench learning from Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> You're going to doubt a guy that everybody admits has all the tools necessary in the world. That the best drafter in football right now traded up to get, who's going to learn from the guy that gave Matt Ryan his best year ever when he was a quarterback coach, because our head coach used to be a quarterback coach before he was an offensive coordinator and then a head coach. And he was a very well-liked and respected quarterback coach. He did great things with quarterbacks. He's also going to be sitting behind Aaron Rodgers. And these people are actually going to go on Twitter and publicly declare that this was a bad pick. Everybody's just putting it out there. And I'm sure they think they're just going to go back and delete it if Jordan Love is great, but I promise you, it's been, it's been uh, captured. 
Okay, somebody has a screenshot. So, I mean, if you want to be that guy, I'll, I'll admit it's it's unlikely. It's very rare for quarterbacks to be great. You know, it's what one one in one in not very many goes on to have elite level careers. But if you had to bet on one, you're telling me that Jordan Love isn't a pretty good bet. Look at what Jalen Hurts is doing. You think the Eagles are are very good at what they do? What are the Eagles good at? We took Jordan Love over Jalen Hurts, and we traded up to get him. There's no guarantees, but I'm saying you're you're taking a pretty big gamble, kind of mocking A.J. Dillon and uh, Jordan Love. That, to me, kind of silly. Maybe you're just not paying attention. And, and again, Packers fans, you've got to recognize how unbelievably elite this is. And that doesn't even go on to say what he's done in free agency. That's a whole other category of all these guys getting the best edge rushers, and we go on to get like number seven and eight on the list, and they end up being like the top two. Zadarius Smith was by far the best free agent pass rusher in that class. Nobody cared. Adrian Amos is probably the best safety that came out of that free agency class. He was probably like number five on the list. Way better than the number one guy who went to Washington, who I, again, I said was massively overrated. Don't pay the guy. He's not worth it. Well, Washington felt like paying him. He wasn't worth it. He's not very good. Adrian Amos is a top five safety in the NFL right now. I mean, depending on how recent we want to go, he might be the best safety over the last, you know, three-ish, four-ish weeks. Go back five weeks, Darnell Savage and Adrian Amos are probably the best safety. It's not even a debate. They're the best safety duo in football right now. And that's a Gutekunst free agent and a Gutekunst draft pick. Our pass rushers, all free agents and draft picks from Brian Gutekunst. Our defensive line right now is a Ted Thompson pick that is failing to produce, although he is getting better, but still, next to a guy that's stepping up, which is a fifth-round pick from Brian Gutekunst. The only linebacker who's doing anything is a Brian Gutekunst fifth-round pick. And then the defensive tackle is a fifth-round pick. Our lockdown corner is a first-round pick from Brian Gutekunst. This whole team, he's a brand-new GM. This whole team has been torn down and rebuilt by Brian Gutekunst. We haven't even attempted to get any wide receivers or any weapons. And we got Tunyon, who was a street-free agent that he just happened to pick up. And Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who was a fifth-round pick. And Alan Lazard, who was an undrafted free agent. By the Jaguars, by the way. It's another guy that he just saw and picked up off another uh, off the street. Or uh, I think it was the Jaguars practice squad. Just stole him. Offensive line, Billy Turner, Elton Jenkins. He, he's, he's, he's been the GM for three years. He's basically built the whole team from the ground up. It's unbelievable. Anyways, I'm massively over time. But again, this is just a glimpse, a glimmer of a Brian Gutekunst appreciation. Um, anybody that is upset with what he is doing has impossibly unfair expectations of a GM because he is doing the impossible. He is by far the best GM right now, by far. And the same goes for Matt LaFleur. There is not a better head coach in the NFL than Matt LaFleur. You can point to Andy Reid if you want to. That's fine. I I just, look, Andy Reid, I respect a lot. Andy Reid's been a head coach in a lot of places. He found success when he found Pat Mahomes. I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, it's a great marriage, and I, you know, he's taken that, that offense to new levels, and it's a very creative offense, and I don't want to take anything from that. Matt LaFleur, having zero experience as a head coach, took a team that was in the dumpster and made it a 13-3 and team and brought it to the NFC Championship game in his first year. That's special. That's next-level stuff. Andy Reid didn't do that. He didn't drag anything out of the gutter. He got dragged out of the gutter. 
by Pat Mahomes. And again, it's a good marriage. He's, I'm not saying any coach could come in and do that. It's just it's a perfect marriage of a very intelligent, very creative coach who has reinvented himself, like we've been saying Mike McCarthy needs to do but refuses to, very modernized, all that stuff. Kudos to him. I'm saying Matt LaFleur is a special breed of human to be able to take, and, and yes, he has Aaron Rodgers, that's true. Could, could he do this with Mitch Trubisky? Probably not, no. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is a six-win team when he showed up. Made it a 13-win team. They're potentially going to go 13-3 and again if they can win their next two games and get the first-round by best team in the NFC, uh, NFC, winning the NFC North two years in a row, 2-0 uh, and so far. Also, you know, best GM in football, best head coach in football, best quarterback in football, best wide receiver in football, best left tackle in football, best center in football, best corner in football, best safety duo in football, and on and on she goes. But again, for the 900th time, I really do have to go. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.